0: Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. Multilateral Development Banks, or MDBs, have been the heart of the international development system since World War II. However, in this century, the geoeconomic landscape has changed quite dramatically. New banks and new challenges call for global collective action and financing that MDBs are well-placed to provide but have been handicapped in doing so effectively. This panel from the 2018 Australasian Aid Conference discusses the Centre for Global Development's new report on the future of multilateral development banking and how the MDBs should respond to new development challenges.
1: Thank you very much for coming to this session. I think it's going to be a really interesting one on the um, multilateral development banks and their future. Um, And we've got a fantastic panel uh, to talk about and I'll introduce uh, them in a moment. So, I think in the past, um, when people thought about the multilateral development banks and there was a debate in public about it, it very much focused on their effectiveness. Um, But I think uh, there was never a question as to their relevance. Um, So they were the largest uh, providers of development financing, they were the platform for most uh, international actors, whether it's bilateral donors, they had enormous influence over the policy settings in developing countries. But I think over the past uh, 15 years or so, there have been increasing uh, questions about the relevance of the multilateral development banks. There's been a major decline in their share of development finance overall, as ODA has fallen, but there's also been a decline in their share of ODA. Uh, And many donors now um, that are scaling up their bilateral programs are increasingly earmarking what money they do give to the multilateral development banks. And, of course, we've seen this proliferation of multilateral architecture and the emergence of major global funds that are sucking up a lot of the money that might have traditionally gone to the multilateral development banks. So, And there's increasing questions as to whether their business model, which remains very project-based, is relevant in the modern world and the degree to which they um, remain relevant to both donors in developing countries. So. I think that um, is a question I'd be keen on exploring over the next uh, hour and a half we've got. Um, but I'll pass over to uh, Nancy, who needs no introduction. Mm-hmm. Of course, she gave the keynote address yesterday. Um, uh, founded the Global Center uh, for Global Development in 2001, uh, has a career in both the Inter-American Development Bank and the World Bank. So, uh, and it's tracked uh, developments in the multilateral development system closely and written on it. So I can't think of anyone better placed uh, to talk to this topic, and, of course, has been a great friend of the Australian aid program for over a decade. So Nancy, over to you.
2: Thank you, Chris. I'm going to stand up, uh, just easier for me, I think, and then I'll sit down for the discussion. So um, we'll start with the picture of this report, which came out at the end of 2016. And what I'm going to do is just go quickly through the recommendations in this report, some of the background, uh, and then at the end make a few points about how uh, things have changed in the last little over a year. At least some things have changed. And if I exaggerate a little, I could say that some of the things that changed could be in partial response, if not entire response, to our recommendations or to the extent that the recommendations made sense anyway in response to what's happening in the real world. So the second slide is just meant to impress you with the distinguished panel. (laughs) You can look for people that you know or might know of. Um, It was actually a very wonderful panel with a mix of civil society people, uh, some academics and others who've been in high places. Uh, Was chair in the multilateral banks, and it was chaired by um, co-chaired by Montek Ahluwalia, some of you might know from India, and Larry Summers and Andres Velasco, who is the former Minister uh, of Finance from Chile, and I think is still hoping to run for president in Chile. So watch for his name. So why this report, and why now? Well. There's a new landscape since many years ago. I, I should I should say as deep background. The the, the the sense we tried to convey is that the MDB model is fantastic. It's a terrific model for leveraging resources and using them as well as one might hope, right, in a multilateral context where many people from many different settings and countries and so on can become more and more involved in, in some of the big questions about development, but also in, in doing effective lending and other uh, ways of interacting with the developing countries. So that's the background. Now, why now? Uh, first, obviously, emerging markets, developing countries are now 50% of global economy. And that was a wake-up call in the U.S., particularly when the AIIB was formed and the U.S. dragged its heels and did not manage to make itself a member, uh, which was a lot about politics and not about uh, geopolitics um, and not about economics. Uh, Very definitely new global challenges, some of what Chris might have been referring to. Uh, The needs are changing and many of the collective action problems that we face are badly underfunded. And the reason is, from the MDBs, that the business-as-usual model is country lending. It's it's both the project orientation that Chris mentioned, but also countries borrow. And at least in the hard window, the IBRD window, they give a counter-guarantee. So it's kind of risk-free, in a sense, for the multilateral banks as financial institutions. And this is history and this is habit. You know, at the World Bank, it's many decades now that the whole bureaucracy and the whole Weltanschauung of the bank is about lending money to one country at a time and providing other technical assistance and so on. But it's very country-based. So not oriented to such new challenges as climate, pandemic, disease, so on and so on. And uh, no longer a single World Bank, that's the other big change since 1944. There's a very large and growing system of multilateral development banks that some of you who are here must know, not only the AIIB, but the New Development Bank, then we have the Islamic Development Bank, the EBRD was founded only in the 1990s, and so on. So, the big picture. The recommendations are for shareholders, not for management. That's quite important. Um, There's an explicit new mission we recommend, starting at the World Bank. uh, And the co-chairs wanted the World Bank to be renamed from IBRD to IBRSD. That hasn't gotten much traction. Maybe it's just too much... that we don't call the World Bank the IBRD, we call it the World Bank. Um, And we put quite a lot of emphasis in the recommendations directly and indirectly on the idea that the regional development banks should be (coughs) where most of the additional growth in terms of, say, capital adequacy or recapitalizations happens. And that's a combination of reflecting, I would say, first... On the new mission, the idea that the World Bank should not worry so much about lending a lot of money, but uh, learn, you know, create incentives internally to be more catalytic, to focus on yes, lending, but especially green and sustainable lending, and become gradually over the years the sort of green bank to accompany the <coughs> Green Climate Fund uh, based in Korea, and the regional development banks should continue where they have strength, and I'll talk about in a few minutes. So uh, these are the five recommendations that I'll go through quickly. Uh, Instead of reading them now, we'll just start with the World Bank should initiate a more coherent focus on global uh, global public goods, including a $10 billion window. So explicit new mandate... The World Bank still does not actually have a mandate from the shareholders to deal with global public goods. It does a lot of things through trust funds and so on, and certainly a lot of the global dialogue that's sponsored represents a sort of global public good. Uh, But the shareholders have never said, this is your mandate. Figure out how to do it well, and let's talk about how to... finance your activities in that area. So the recommendation was to start with a $10 billion a year window, uh, which would be uh, trust fund-like, but you know bigger and hopefully more strategic and coherent than a lot of different trust funds, $10 billion in concessional money and effectively grant money which I'll explain how it could be used in a minute. And we show in the report that that $10 billion, a very large proportion of it could be funded uh, by internal revenues under a new balance sheet or a new business model, balance sheet optimization. And here it's very nice to have the chief economist from the Asian Development Bank because the Asian Development Bank, as many of you may know, Uh, combined their balance sheets now a year and a half ago or two years ago and generated a lot more uh, equity by uh, enabling the bank to borrow against the very large streams of future reflows from the uh, Asian Development Fund. And the World Bank has done something like that since. As many of you know, it's borrowed against its IDA flows but there's still plenty of room if they were able at the World Bank to combine the balance sheets uh, to be even have a, even larger equity base against which to borrow on uh, capital markets. So this is a picture, it's rather hard to figure out, but the top is where the resources could come from. And, you know, I've always hoped that maybe China uh, would be interested in... This window would have to have a, a new governance structure, as Ida did when it was created. And you know, maybe there are some countries, including China, that would want to put uh, some capital into the new window, which then would provide the basis for borrowing on capital markets and flows of interest income uh, from investments that could be used to uh, get somewhere along, you know, a billion a year, and that sort of flows. But it, you can also imagine redirecting what are now, some of you may know, you, you know each year, uh, IBRD some IBRD net income is put into IDA, and it used to be that some IFC, the private sector window income, was put into IDA. Uh, there's a lot of uh, the emerging market economies don't like that. Um, they would rather see those that net income, uh, in effect, reduce their cost of borrowing, but... Um, those monies could be put alternatively into a new window that would be the idea of which would be to provide benefits for all countries. So that's how money could be raised. Now what would could be done with the money? And here there's been a tremendous amount of misunderstanding uh, because I guess we weren't clear enough or specific enough. But uh, the first thing would be just, this would not be a separate staff or anything. So staff in the World Bank would go on. Uh, produce, developing projects, um, but the window would enable the World Bank to subsidize loans, uh, which had obvious global spillovers. And those global spillovers reduce the incentives for countries to borrow at the IBRD interest rate. So the example I like very much, because at CGD we also did a lot of work on how to uh, problems of reducing deforestation, is that Indi- uh, Indonesia could borrow much more than it otherwise would if its rate of interest on such a loan were reduced substantially through a subsidy uh, from such a window. So some of you will be thinking maybe this is comparable to what happened with Syria and Lebanon, or with Jordan and Lebanon. So subsidized MDB loans, the other one would be if India, you know, needs to build power projects and rely on coal, and it's a very complicated situation where the World Bank and other banks and donors are saying we won't support coal-based power. Well, the rich countries go on doing coal, right? So we have a situation in which the rich world is saying, well, we, we can do it, but you can't do it, at least not with... Uh, loans from MDBs. It would be much more sensible to have financing that would pay the incremental upfront costs to build a solar power or wind power in India, or even natural gas, and finance some of the additional costs for consumers, even a stream of... uh, This would be recognizing that the global carbon price is just too low, so what we call least cost in developing a project in power is only least cost in a world where carbon doesn't cost everybody some something uh, in terms of pollution and climate change. So there could also be direct grants including to the Global P- Climate Fund, I think I called it the Green Climate Fund uh, or maybe it is the Green Climate Fund, I can't remember. Uh, CGIAR, which is the Agricultural Research, that's Agricultural Research is a global public good. Um, licensing technology transfer and finally direct transfers to analogous windows at the regional development banks until the regional development banks shareholders also agreed to set up uh, separate windows or some comparable arrangement. The idea here was basically have the World Bank do it, proof of concept. World Bank is terrific at raising money uh, those of you who know, Chris probably knows, right, for successive item replenishments and now a recapitalizations on the, on the agenda. So the idea would be to start at the World Bank on global public goods, but certainly the regional development banks could have the same thing. So uh, recommendation number two is for sustainable agriculture. Right now, all the banks together, all the, the multilateral banks together, then maybe $50 billion a year for infrastructure, and our recommendation is that they go up to $200 billion. It's still a drop in the bucket for those of you who know about billions to trillions, but the idea is that 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 $200 billion would go to uh, programs and projects that would have a highly catalytic effect or would be models of how to do it right that then would be copied without additional uh, international resources of any kind. Uh, World Bank focus on green infrastructure, RDBs take on most of the additional growth in basic public infrastructure, dialogue on pricing, etc. Where their capacity, well I'll talk about that in a minute, I won't try to do it now. So any additional recapitalizations concentrated at the regional development banks. Um, that's an example that one of the discussions will like, but so far it hasn't gotten any traction at all. So (laughs) I'm glad to have a chance to share it with you. Uh, This is just a quick note. You know, some of you know, I spent six years at the Inter-American Development Bank, and I saw the power of a regional bank with full ownership by the borrowers to really push ahead on critical policy reforms at the country level. There's a sense of solidarity among Uh, The Latins uh, at the the Inter-American Development Bank that has made a huge difference in the 90s and still matters quite a lot. So the long-run comparative advantage of the regional banks is ownership. Um, It's different in different banks. You know I think it's very important at the IDB that the precedent always comes from a borrower country. It's an additional fix. And at the IDB, some of you may not know that it's uh, almost 50%. Somebody reminded me yesterday, 49.8% of the shares are held by the borrowers, and 502 are held by the non-borrowers. So it's a much more balanced kind of governance, which has also had, I think, a very profound effect on the sense of ownership and the ability of the IDB to make a difference in the uh, Latin America Car- Caribbean region. So the regional development banks also already do regional operations, so does the World Bank, but not much. The incentives are not good for staff to do anything other than one country at a time. The negotiation issues uh, are sort of, you know, they grow at an exponential rate as you add two countries or three countries to a regional operation. Um, And the regional development banks are already partnering with each other and with the World Bank. So. Uh, Recommendation number three is concessional finance. Uh, And here it's just saying, all these other things we're saying don't mean anything, you know, other than maintain the levels of truly concessional finance at 25 billion. Uh, A better balance between IDA and the African Development Bank. I mean, we're in the Asia region, so I won't talk about that, but if anybody asks me about it, I will explain how imbalanced the IDA is In sub-Saharan Africa, it's maybe seven times bigger in the next three years in capacity to lend compared to the African Development Bank. So the potential comparative advantage of a regional bank is maybe being lost. And less inflexible income-based silos. Uh, I just said that. I won't go into detail, but I'd be happy to do it. Recommendation number four, contingency set-asides for crises and post-conflict reconstructions. This one is happening. Uh, the, the, the example that is best known is that the Jim Kim, a president of the World Bank, uh, in an effort to provide some services, mostly health and education services, uh, and some better policies set up for refugees from Syria in Jordan and Lebanon, uh, went around with the begging bowl to the donors, please give me some money so I can persuade Jordan and Lebanon to borrow from us, they're middle income countries, they have to pay IBRD rates, let's subsidize them indirectly, and then we can persuade them to borrow to provide services and and, um, other kinds of assistance to the refugees, which otherwise it's certainly hard politically in those countries to make it a priority to borrow at higher rates of interest. Um, So rapid pandemic response, many of you will have, if you're in the MDB world at all, will be familiar with the efforts now to do things uh, for the multilaterals to get into these kinds of issues, especially again the World Bank because of Jim Kim's um, interest and experience in dealing with the Ebola epidemic and the long delay in dealing with it in West Africa and a more rapid and effective and sustained humanitarian response. Uh, All these things, you know, require some sort of, we're recommending instead of ad hoc, when each crisis occurs, go around and figure out what to do on the financing side, uh, have more contingency funds. And some of this had already happened in a very small way in the prior replenishment of IDA, but uh, and more happened since, so that's moving. And then in a way the most boring, least sexy recommendation, but potentially I think really important in a strategic sense is that we recommend that the shareholders every five years uh, have a cross-MDB review at the political level, that is sort of G20, G7, but even broader than a G20, with the finance ministers, not with um, the boards, for example. Bring them all together to address issues like this imbalance. Actually, let me use that as an example. Well, first, the issue of collective action issues are not effectively dealt with now on the financing side by the multilateral banks. But another example is this unbelievable imbalance in sub-Saharan Africa between uh, the size and ability and now capacity of the African Development Bank and uh, the World Bank, IDA. And I don't think that that was a decision on the part of the shareholders, the common shareholders of both banks. It just happened over time because there was more faith, perhaps more trust in the World Bank, And sometimes by accident, you know, the replenishment of the African Development Bank, soft front would come six months after the World Bank, and then the donors were kind of worn out in their relations with their treasuries and their parliaments uh, and were less able, if not less willing, to uh, provide sufficient resources. And... um, so, you know, we had some discussion about the G20 actually picked this up, but we made the point it shouldn't be only the G20, and the shareholders commit to the governance reform proposed by the CDO Commission in 2009. Uh, this was sort of an easy out because there was a lot of disagreement among the panelists and among the chairs about how much to fuss about the age-old governance problems, uh, in the multilateral banks, including you know all the way to issues of should the boards be res- in resident or not, and it's very interesting I think that Jin uh, President Jin at the AIIB made some initial decisions uh, that really have I think make it more of a 21st century bank, including that uh, the board is non-resident and that and meets four times a year. Some of you might know better, right? And that leads to, uh, uh, at a political level, higher, well, higher level people engage because they're making really serious strategic decisions in meetings four times a year instead of uh, living there all the time and spending a lot of time talking to each other and, and doing often maybe constructive input on one project at a time. But not engaged. The other thing with the AIB is that um, President Jin has tried to avoid being the chairman of the board as well as uh, the accountable president uh, in management terms. So, quick update recommendation five. Uh, that went through the, German, the Germans in Baden-Baden about a year ago, a decided to do something about this system problem when they were chairing the G20, I guess they're still chairing the G20 for another month or something, and appointed an eminent persons group. I'm very disappointed that probably none of you know, even know what I'm talking about, but this is a very distinguished group chaired by Tarman Sunigaratnam. Of, uh, he's the deputy prime minister in Singapore. I'm also just—it's—I'm dis- disappointed that it, it hasn't been uh, discussed more widely, what they're thinking about and what they're doing. It's been pretty much a closed, I call it, but maybe I shouldn't be quoted, like a central bank uh, sort of way of doing things, as opposed to a uh, uh, prime minister's office or a finance minister or a development cooperation minister. Uh, But we do see uh, these changes, um, which I said recommendation one, four, and three are sort of merging together around a little bit more push on dealing with collective action problems, at least in the case of refugees, which I explained, and a big push on health security crises, risks, where Australia is taking some leadership, in fact. But it's all pretty ad hoc still, and so the challenge is whether you embed it better. And then on recommendation number two, uh, there's a little bit of continued effort to figure out how to leverage more effectively uh, private sector windows in particular for major infrastructure. I mean leverage in terms of bringing in more private resources, private investors. But I think it's still more talk about blended finance and PPPs, public-private partnerships, than action. So thank you very much. Uh, I did want to say, complaints are also welcome.
1: <laughs> Terrific. Thanks very much, Nancy. There's plenty of media issues we can get into during the discussion uh, that you've raised there. But first, we've got two discussants. Um, so first, um, we've got uh, the chief economist of the Asian Development Bank, Yosawi, uh, Sorry, um, Yusuku so, wider. Um, so he, uh, in that role, serves as the Director-General of the Economic Research and Regional Cooperation Department, which publishes the ADB's flagship knowledge products. Um, before assuming his current post, he was Professor at the University of Tokyo's Graduate School of Economics, uh, and he's got over 20 years of experience as an economist, researcher, and academic. So um, welcome uh, for some comments. Uh, thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Mr. Chair, uh, for very nice uh, introduction. And uh, thank you very much, Nancy, for a really uh, uh, concise and uh, focused uh, summary of uh, uh, reports. Uh, actually, uh, 15 years ago, uh, 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 I got to know a Center for Global Development because uh, f- just 15 years ago, year 2013, uh, CGD started the making a ranking of donors, right. commitment <laughs> to development uh, index and. Uh, First one came out uh, if I believe, uh, remember correctly, 2013 and uh,
2: Three,
3: 2003 2003. Ah, uh, sorry, 2003, yeah. 15 years ago, and uh, Japan was ranked lowest. Yes. So before <laughs> before this uh, publication, we got we got to know this uh, plan of CGD going to publish a uh, 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 you know uh, index which ranked the lowest, and as a relatively fresh. Uh, economists, I was so much intrigued. What's the method to making a uh, ranking? What kind of data? So actually, 15 years ago, we uh, we did uh, uh, sort of a uh, replication of CGD's uh, uh, commitment index, and also uh, we came up with an alternative index to improve improve uh, <laughs> uh, ranking. But um, so that uh, you know, a very uh, uh, how to say I mean, we're,
2: we're trying. My colleagues are trying to come up with some changes and alternatives. Yes, things. yes, yes. So, I But think. I do remember going to Japan mm-hmm. and in 2003, and it was it was actually a wonderful mm-hmm. trip. Very polite. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Very polite. And also, uh, we kind of expected uh, expect at that time. Um, with that, uh, we can put a uh, lot of pressure on the government. To improve aid operations. Yes, that was so, the idea. So that's, uh, yeah. But anyway, thank you very much for very nice uh, 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 summarizing summarizing report. Um, so actually, I'm gonna I'd like to make uh, four comments, uh, uh, four set of comments, and uh, mostly my comments are rather uh, focused one, and also uh, instead of uh, commenting on a broader governance issue, I'd like to. Comment on more um, uh, practical uh, issues, how to make, um, as uh, uh, Nancy briefly mentioned, these uh, emergency uh, programs are still uh, being made out of basis. So, my comment is more on how practically or pragmatically uh, we can uh, uh, pursue this set of recommendations. Uh, so, I'm going to talk about things on contents and uh, in you know, the actual uh, workings of a uh, program. So these are the four set of comments I'd like to make. So let me start by um, uh, first comment of uh, global public goods. Um, so uh, actually new challenges arising from new uh, forms of uh, market uh, failures, and uh, uh, these issues are so diverse, uh, climate change, health, and um, uh, new uh, uh, necessity for um, a new type of agriculture technology, Uh, salinity-resistant variety of uh, wheat and uh, uh, submergence, uh, 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 flood-resistant rice variety. These innovations are needed. Um, I I really uh, agree for this um, uh, 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 idea of making uh, uh, global uh, public goods and uh, making this uh, as a part of uh, MDP's mandate uh, because new challenges and new uh, uh, public goods and new market failures, I imagine. But um, uh, my question is, uh, there are two things. One is, uh, how can we make a systematic uh, uh, institution uh, inside the governance so that we can continuously identify uh, the most important uh, you know, area which needs a global action? And also, um, uh, 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 how to uh, make sure uh, Yesterday's, uh, Nancy's uh, presentation was wonderful, you know, strugglers' voice or poor people's uh, needs, how we can, uh, on time, uh, uh, incorporate uh, uh, into the uh, system of identifying and uh, putting money, uh, identifying, uh, you know, uh, important uh, uh, collective action area and uh, 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 how to mobilize surely uh, towards these uh, important areas. So that's uh, my uh, first question. Uh, having this said this is very di- uh, difficult task because uh, most of our um, uh, public goods in the area where uh, we don't know, uh, like Ebola epidemic, you know, pandemic, uh, uh, new emergence, emergence of new uh, tropical disease and the re-emergence of uh, tropical disease, uh, we don't know. So these unforeseen contingency we need to tackle and effectively uh, mobilize resources. And uh, so after all, we need uh, some system of, uh, effective system of identifying Mm -hmm. issues and uh, mobilizing resources. So uh, my question is, how can we do that? And uh, probably some type of uh, adaptive learning system is needed within uh, MDBs. And um, so this is my uh, first question. And related to this, uh, uh, public goods, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, basically a prison dilemma problem. So if there is no third-party enforcing or there is no uh, kind of a a mechanism to uh, uh, voluntary contribution, then uh, uh, provision of public goods will be uh, uh, lower than uh, optimal level. So how we can make sure that uh, voluntary contribution or contribution to public goods are sufficiently, uh, 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 you know, uh, enough to satisfy optimal level of public goods. And uh, actually this is a little bit theoretical uh, question. Of course, uh, 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 you know, uh, stakeholders can uh, discuss and decide uh, optimal level of public goods, uh, 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 public goods uh, uh, contribution. But um, uh, theoretically speaking, uh, Lindahl model or Krak, uh, 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 et etc., etc. There, there are theories of uh, uh, public goods uh, contribution. And, so basically, you know, we should charge uh, different uh, contributors in terms of uh, uh, margin benefit arising from the contribution to public goods. So this is a theoretically uh, uh, optimal condition. So in reality, how we can make it sure? So that's the number one uh, uh, question. And uh, related to this, I'd like to also uh, emphasize the uh, importance of um, uh, regional uh, public goods. So global public goods is a big uh, 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 target, and uh, it may be difficult to identify globally relevant uh, uh, target uh, instantaneously, but uh, each region, uh, it's, it may be easier to uh, come up with um, uh, a concrete uh, uh, targets for public goods uh, provision. So, uh, actually, I'd like to emphasize the role of regional public goods, and um, um, so, in a sense, in other words, um, uh, regional public goods or sub-regional cooperation mechanisms like the uh, Great sub Subregions and Central Asia, ADB has been supporting the uh, CAREC uh, initiative uh, and uh, South Asia SASEC initiative. So, these are the sub-regional uh, 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 you know, economic uh, uh, framework. Uh, within this framework, regional public goods provision uh, or regional public goods is the uh, top uh, uh, agenda. Uh, you know, supporting cross-border uh, infrastructure construction, and uh, also um, uh, ICT network, um, uh, trade facilitation through modernization of uh, customs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, these regional public goods um, have been playing a very important role. Uh, for example, to transform whole uh, Mekong Delta area. Nineteen seventy, it was battlefield, but now marketplace. So in order to transform Butterfield into ma- marketplace, this regional program really play a very important role, I believe. And uh, 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 key is uh, how to uh, provide uh, regional public goods. Yeah. So ADB also uh, supported this initiative. So my comment, uh, still first comment, uh, regional, this sub-regional program may, may, can be a building block or starting stone for global uh, public goods. Uh, in other words, um, uh, this regional public goods provision for the regional, sub-regional program shouldn't be a passive, you know. A global agenda is set by G20 or, you know, bigger level, and then regional program uh, or regional uh, uh, framework should possibly uh, take this uh, global set agenda. But I, I think uh, the other way, the other uh, uh, arrow uh, should be also uh, considered. So, So that's the first question. And second question is about uh, uh, sustainable infrastructure. So ADB did um, a report and um, uh, study uh, just one year ago, uh, infrastructure needs assessment. So taking uh, four sectors, energy, uh, uh, transportation, ICT, and water, uh, we analyzed uh, past uh, cross-country panel data uh, to make uh, assessment of past investment uh, needs assessment. And using that the past investment uh, trend, uh, uh, we have done this um, uh, uh, prediction of future investment needs in these four infrastructure sector. And um, um, actually, our result shows the 1.7 trillion US dollars needed per year in Asian Pacific region. Uh, actually, 20, uh, 15, sorry, 16 years of uh, uh, SDG horizon 26 trillions are needed. So mm-hmm. per year 1.7 trillion are needed. So then we can compare what's the um, uh, current investment level. Actually because of the data uh, problem uh, uh, we have to confine overall Asian Pacific region 1.7 per year. That's uh, investment needs uh, we identified through our uh, quantitative study. Uh, and then uh, actual investment uh, is how hang- 800 or 900 billion U.S. dollars uh, in Asia. Uh, actually, this is a subset of uh, uh, data. So a uh, subset of uh, data, 1.7, uh, 1.3 uh, trillion U.S. dollars investment is needed, and the current investment is 880 billion. So there are 450 or 460 billion dollars uh, investment uh, gap exists in Asia. And uh, the way we have done is, uh, you know, uh, we estimated past data uh, uh, relationship between uh, growth performance, and other country characteristics, and the investment demand. So, uh, and then using these, uh, uh, you know, parameters estimated by regression, in order to predict uh, future needs. So that means, um, in order to continue growth trend and uh, um, poverty reduction uh, trend of Asia, four hundred. 50, 460 dollars investment needed, and also um, I forgot to mention on top of this uh, uh, investment needs to continue Asia's growth momentum for the reduction trend. We also added, especially in energy sector, uh, 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 necessary investment for climate change uh, mitigation. So investment additional investment in uh, 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 energy sector is needed to achieve um, a global. Uh, target, Paris target, and uh, also in addition we also uh, added uh, uh, adaptation-related investment needs in transportation sector especially. So actually this 1.7 trillion dollars includes both the climate change adaptation and uh, mitigation investment. But anyway, in order to continue gross momentum poverty reduction trend and also achieve uh, global climate targets, 450 or 460 billion Investment gap exists. So this is the uh, current situation. So natural question is how we can finance uh, this additional 400 or 500 uh, billion U.S. dollars per year. Uh, Actually, let me move on. Uh, There are three ways, basically first way is uh, each government engage in fiscal reforms, uh, tax uh, uh, reform, and uh, expenditure reorganization, borrowing, uh, prudently, entry, etc., etc., so each uh, member country or client uh, developing country can uh, expand the fiscal space so that uh, at least partially this um, uh, investment gap can be fulfilled. Um, but a- according to our uh, uh, analysis, fiscal space analysis, out of 450 or 460, Only 40 percent at most, maximum 40 percent, can be financed through, uh, you know, augmented uh, public investment. So, rest 60 percent, roughly, uh, uh, you know, 300 billion per year or so, should be uh, mobilized uh, by uh, uh, should be from the public sector uh, investment. Um, so, naturally promoting a public uh, participation, as uh, Nancy briefly touched upon, PPP should be uh, uh, used at a greater level, and also broader uh, you know, uh, investment, private investment, uh, facilitating climate uh, should be, ecosystem should be established, also in medium-term uh, capital markets should be uh, nurtured in Asia. Still, Asian capital market seems to be really lagging behind. Um, so in order to touch with this, uh, uh, role of, uh, MDBs can play a very important role. Uh, in terms of direct financing, uh, MDBs, including ADB and World Bank, only finance 2.5% of Asia's uh, infrastructure investment. So direct uh, you know, loan capacity, uh, supply capacity is quite limited. So uh, critical issue is how to leverage our uh, limited resources. And uh, so credit enhancement and uh, uh, loan guarantee, uh, uh, also, technical assistance, etc., etc., uh, will be a very uh, key role to stimulate more uh, private uh, investment, both quantity and quality. Uh, having said this, uh, as uh, Nancy touched upon, so balance sheet uh, reform, ADB uh, engaged, and uh, sort of merging the uh, se- concessional window and uh, uh market-based window, so that the long supply capacity expanded by 50%. Uh, so that kind of effort is also uh, uh, kind of targeted towards the uh, filling this uh, investment gap. Another issue is AIB, uh, New Development Bank. Uh, what we see is uh, they are a very important partner to fill in uh, these investment gaps. And uh, indeed, uh, with AIB, ADB uh, exchanged MOU, former exchange a former MOU two years ago, and uh, we started co-financing. Um, uh, uh, project already, four projects in Bangladesh, India, Bangladesh, India Pakistan, Georgia, four co-financing projects, especially in the transportation and energy sector, already going on more in pipeline. But this is not enough, and how to tap private money, so I'd like to briefly explain. So, 400, 500 investment gap exists. Uh, in uh, Asia. Um, on the other hand, around the world, if we look, uh, uh, developed country pension funds and insurance funds, and sovereign wealth funds, these institutional investors, they have really big chunk of money, uh, seventy billion, trillion to hundred trillion money assets they uh, uh, hold, and they have been suffering from a zero interest rate or negative interest rate. Um, On the other hand, Asia is growing and more than 60% of uh, global growth can be now uh, driven by Asia. So potentially a high return investment opportunity in infrastructure, uh, plenty uh, in Asia. Um, However, the issue is potentially high return investment uh, uh, project in Asia. Uh, Also, from the investor viewpoint, uh, associated with a high risk. So, the risking is a, a big issue uh, to connect uh, big ins- investment money flowing into Asia's, uh, developing Asia's investment, uh, infrastructure investment. So, uh, again, uh, MDB, like ADB and World Bank, can play a very important role to de risking by providing credit enhancement, guarantee, and also platform for PPP. Asset. So, then, um, uh, third uh, comment is about uh, uh, epidemics and pandemics. So, so, actually, this is a definition of a disaster. There are four types of disasters around the world. First one is a disaster triggered by natural hazard, hydrometeorological or geophysical, like earthquake tsunami, and biological uh, disaster, uh, such as uh, uh, epidemics, pandemics, and uh, insect infestation. Uh, second one is technological disasters, uh, uh, mainly human made. Third one is the crisis, violence related disaster force. And actually, um, we have a data to characterize these different types of disaster. Uh, and uh, this is a year per countries, the uh, frequency of different types of disaster. What is striking is the green uh, line showing that uh, 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 disasters triggered by natural hazards, especially uh, hydrometeorological disasters, are globally increasing trends. And uh, in Asia, actually, this uh, increasing trend of uh, uh, disaster triggered by natural hazard, uh, leading to a larger uh, economic losses uh, triggered by uh, natural hazards. Okay. But, in three degree, these uh, disaster losses triggered by natural hazard, uh, proportion of uh, uh, insured uh, losses are very minimal. In North America, two-thirds of um, uh, losses caused by natural hazards are covered by insurance. One-third uncovered by insurance. But in Asia, uh, only 9% are covered, and uh, Africa, is less than 1%, and Latin America, 3%. So more than 90% of uh, losses caused by natural hazards are not really insured through a market-based insurance mechanism. So this, is, this um, uh, shows uh, a very serious lack of uh, uh, market mechanism against this um, uh, you know, uh, contingency and uh, disasters. So market failure, uh, then uh, government should play a very important role, uh, but many uh, uh, government, uh, including uh, developed countries, uh, 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 fail uh, due to legitimate reasons. So market failure is there and the government uh, supposed to uh, uh, correct, but government also fail. Uh, in order to tackle these uh, market and government failures, uh, I believe community uh, mechanism can be strengthened to maximize complementarity of market and community mechanism. So in order to tackle different types of uh, disasters, uh, unexpected and forcing events, I think uh, strengthening this uh, mechanism is very important. Uh, MDB can play a very important role, of course, helping uh, client government and uh, amending a market mechanisms. And also, you know, different, through different operations, uh, directly and uh MDBs can also play very important role. So let me wrap up. So new business models for uh, new market failures are necessary, including climate change and uh, uh, tropical disease, et etc. Et so full range of instruments should be elaborated. I fully agree, and in, in order to uh, uh, enhance uh, capacity, internal reforms of MDBs are also important. So I fully agree. But I think uh, in this process, we need more evidence, evidence-based policy. And uh, actually, this report uh, emphasizes the uh, 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 importance of uh, institutions like uh, 3IE, uh, which really systematically correct and um, uh, uh, sort out uh, different evidence av- available around the world. So I think uh, uh, this kind of uh, institution is really critical. Uh, at the same time, in order to uh, absorb uh, voices of uh, Uh, people, uh, uh, strugglers, I think uh, low-level engineers um, um, and plumbers need it. Actually, Elsa uh,
0: Duflo's
3: speech last year, American Economic Association, was about uh, economists as uh, plumbers. And um, um, so, in in addition to uh, high-level agenda, I think that these low-level engineering uh, is important, and we should be systematic to combine these two. And uh, so, I think uh, adaptive learning mechanism em- embedded into the institution is really critical to push forward and make effect- effective this uh, list of uh, governance reform uh,
0: suggested by the report. So, I will stop here. Thank you.
1: So our second discussant, Susan Engel, uh, who's a lecturer at the University of Wollongong, and um, for time constraints, uh, that's all I said. Thank you.
4: scientist on the panel. I took it as my job to take a slightly more critical approach to the topic and a sort of large larger picture. Uh, so I want to talk a bit firstly about the proposal, secondly a bit about the actual prospects for reform, and finally uh, a little bit about bigger picture fundamental questions about the nature of multilateral development banking um, and and their directions in particular in terms of the growth of debt. Uh, So, in terms of the proposal itself, um, you know, there's so much interesting stuff in there and I really enjoyed reading it, although I I wanted to start by questioning... I'm just going to jump into these questions, questioning the focus about um, the focus on the World Bank as the place for a new global uh, public goods fund. Why, Why should it fundamentally be in the bank, particularly on one addressing issues like uh, pandemics and health crises. Um, And I I think that there are other institutions that can more ably and nimbly and directly address those and have the expertise in those without creating this multi-level governance system from a global governance perspective that has to go through a World Bank mechanism in order to get to the other actual agencies who do the work. Uh, You could also ask the same questions generally on refugees and agriculture. Um, In terms of climate change reduction and mitigation, there might be a bit more of a case for the World Bank there, given its existing roles, um, and particularly around regional sustainable energy funds. But again... Um, how far it can go, whether it can do the kind of small-scale pro-poor, pro-rural work that's needed in climate responses is a big question, I think, that needs to be uh, looked at. Um, So uh, certainly, though, on data for development, I think the bank already has a, a sort of Scale issue there. So, in terms of one of the other proposals for the global public goods fund was to increase the work on development data, and there the World Bank has a strong case. Um, (coughs) So, for me, I I wonder. You know, you come back to the issue: is is it the banks trying to? Is it a new sense of colonising new space and bank empire building? And that's despite these critiques in the report itself about the bank's tendency to bureaucracy. So... Um, and and the, the discussion seems to be about trying to, special, uh, to... ..to lessen overlap and competition between the World Bank and the regional development banks, but I think there is a sense in which we do see already growing competition between them. I mean, I would say that the ADBs... Choice to equitize its concessional funds is perhaps a sin- signal of its fears about the growth of the AIB, and the um, and the World Bank's moved into its leveraging private finance seems to also be about shoring up its place in the in the in the multilateral development banking system as well as the larger issue of development finance. Um, in fact, it's kind of. It, reading about um, Jim King's move, you can't help wondering if he's trying to do a a Robert McNamara at the World Bank in terms of increasing its status and influence, although um, I'm not sure about his capacity there. So in terms of the possibilities for actual reform, um, And the the issue about the Delio Commission, and it was really interesting, Nancy, to hear how that was kind of a compromised position given the the diversity of views. But the reality is that nine years on from that commission, um, there's been very few implementations, some reform of quotas, but really no, um, you know, other than that, very little response to that commission's recommendations. So... uh, And the political situation currently suggests that whether it's the, the governance reforms or the broader scale reforms look quite difficult. We've got the Trump administration in the US and I surmise he would have even less interest than the Obama administration for any perceived or real loss of US influence whether it comes to um, a more competitive selection of the World Bank president or a more radical uh, reform of the bank and the Global Public Goods Fund that's been talked about included a much more democratic um, governance structure. Um, but I can't see the, uh, the Trump administration really supporting any loss of that. But Nancy might have more comments and ideas on that than I do. And more globally, the EU, some of the more progressive EU donors, I could see that there would be many of those engaging, though Britain at the moment is also hard to judge. China is... I think could be interesting here. It's already set up its own institution in competition, so I'm not sure it would want to give the World Bank more power by setting up a global public goods fund under it, Um, though it might be interested in the climate change and infrastructure... Um, aspects and to get on to my issue about creditor and debtor nations, the international financial institutions still are pri- primarily a system that only forced debtor nations to adjust. China is now one of the largest creditor nations, the largest creditor nation in the world. So it's gone. You know, in 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 a sense, the Bretton Woods twins work now in its interests. Um, so it might be willing to support their expansion from that kind of macro political angle, but in contrast, for borrowing countries, they're still looking at expanding an institution that that places no pressure on creditor nations to adjust or reform. Uh, so I would be surprised if they would, you know, be a high level of support from them, particularly amongst some of the more progressive governments around the world, to the extent there are any. Um, in terms of the nature of the proposal, it seems to me that the, the proposal itself seems to, to talk about MD reform, but not about the nature of what, we're, what, what kind of growth we're encouraging, what kind of system, world system we're encouraging. It's still about development as growth, any kind of growth. And whereas I'd like to see a focus on pro-poor growth, and growth not on growth that's based on unsustainable production and consumption. And I think that the lack of discussion about the nature (coughs) of growth being focused and the kind of growth um, we're looking at by the multilateral banking system, that the lack of discussion about in the report does question how serious the commitment to sustainability is. And I would agree with the note of dissent from um, Ray Offenheiser um, that, uh, where he talks about the lack of focus on inequality in the report. The inequality is an issue that's been um, getting much more attention globally recently. And if we're not talking about growth with equity, pro-poor growth, then you know, uh, we're, not, we're missing the, the possibilities here. Um, Equally, there's no discussion of of issues like gender and ethnicity and caste and so on. And I guess I wanted to raise the issue that there's kind of a pretense that finance, global finance, is not a profoundly gendered space and has profoundly gendered impacts. And if I were being cheeky, which I do tend to be... Um, I would say that this is kind of the report is in some way as an example of what gender mainstreaming has become in, in most multilateral development banks, which means we don't talk about it. So uh, then on to the debt issue. So... There's still a lot of issues here about expanding multinational development banks, expanding their debt, their influence, and that means expanding debt relations, although the global public goods funds is also meant to be a grant mechanism, of course. Um, But at the moment, the direction the World Bank is certainly going is about trying to leverage its influence by leveraging... Uh, private sector financing and the ADB done, has done that as well with equitising its concessional flows. So, what it's done there is packaged its concessional flows and said that those flows are now equity in the same way that, you know, leading up to the global financial crisis, for those who perhaps aren't economists, was done with mortgages. And we sell those mortgages off as securities. That's what we're talking about here. So, and we've got this expansion that everybody's talked about of debt financing. We're not just talking about the MDBs here, but this large-scale growth in in debt financing, development financing, so whether it be the New Development Bank and the AIIB, um, but also the the increasing expansion of other players, the the China Exim Bank, as, as Chris and I were talking about, the China Development Bank, the Indians... The Brazilians have kind of dropped back out of that space with the crisis there in the couple of year, in the last couple of years, and um, and all of this in the context of really large and increasing private flows, as we've heard as well, and um, and so I wanted to question the issues around whether whether this focus should be on debt-based financing and expanding these debt relations, um, because are we just in a sense contributing to the build-up of the next financial crisis. So if the 80s was the developing countries crisis and that merged into the 90s, in the 2000s the debt crisis moved to the developed countries and then to the periphery of the developed countries with the Eurozone crisis. There is no sense in which we have addressed the underlying nature of of, uh, the the debt-based system and the lack of any mechanism globally to deal with... Uh, debt, uh, with debt problems, with debt financing, the only the international system, as I've talked about, is only based on, you know, making debtor countries adjust. Nothing for credited countries. Uh, this massive expansion of debt relations is perhaps just the next, next geospatial fix for the debt crisis, and we'll see that next debt crisis appear in developing countries. And I think with that, I'll leave that there.
0: Uh, all the panellists, uh, it's now your turn. We've got about 20 minutes
1: left. We can discuss uh, some of the specific issues from the report or we can uh, discuss some of the broader issues around the MDBs. Uh, I've already got a few hands, so uh, I'll take four questions in the first round. So Matt first. Yeah,
0: my question
1: is... Let me right. introduce yourself. Yeah. My name is Matt
0: Morris. I'm from the ANU. My question's for Nancy. It's around the, the proposal for the G20 for the... Many Bretton Woods every five years. So, at the moment, the G20 process I the finance ministers meet and they discuss a whole range of international economic issues, including World Bank, IMF, and international architecture reforms, and that usually feeds into the annual meetings. Um, that kind of process is quite sort of frustratingly slow in terms of building consensus and getting real demand for reform. How would the Mini pretton Woods proposal work and and how would that deal with the, the inertia in demanding change in the
2: Mine is really simplistic. I would just sorry. Just really simple. It. Sorry, Everybody introduce else in up. the room probably knows yeah. what this is. And I just wanted a little bit more information around this low-level engineers and plumbers needed a little bit of explanation around
1: that.
0: Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, my name is Yamagata, uh, Japan Society for International Development. Uh, I have a question uh, related to the question raised by Professor Ango on the uh, uh, gender uh, and uh, relation to the current administration. The report was published in 2016 and uh, after that the administration of the US uh, came out. Then uh, uh, one uh, interesting uh, in, uh I mean attempts uh, was uh, uh women's encouragement fund. Uh, I'm not sure the name was I am correctly memorized. I wonder if uh, Susan uh, uh, no, uh, Nancy, I'm sorry. <laughs> Nancy I uh, remember the funds. Uh yeah uh, Elias, known as a Ivanka Fund. What? Yeah, the Ivanka Ivanka Ivanka. you know, the,
1: oh, the, right. yeah, the Wi-Fi. I want to know,
0: want to know your views uh, on the prospects, meaningfulness, if possible. Thank you.
1: And we have one at the back. Chris
0: Roy AMU. Thank you very much for the presentation and the report, uh, Nancy. I was just hoping uh, you could discuss a little bit further about the trend of earmarking uh, by donors and how this is restricting the autonomy of the actual multi to be able to make autonomous decisions about which projects to support and get behind, and how you see that sort of going forward. Whether that's going to be an increasing trend or whether there's something that like the World Bank and other multi-lats can do to uh, kind of push back on that earmarking. Price.
2: Do you mean through the trust funds or? Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're marking through trust funds. Funds, yeah. Yeah. So Nancy, do you want to kick off?
2: Okay, I'll try to be short so there's more time for others' questions. Um, You know, I think you're raising a very good point, Mark. Why would it be any different? So I suppose our hope is that the eminent persons group that I mentioned will suggest a very simple, clear agenda for such a meeting, which would exploit the fact that the discussion is about all the banks, all the Not Otherwise, it's always about the World Bank, frankly. You know. Uh, the other banks, it's about the World Bank. Everybody wants to go to the World Bank meeting because everybody else is there. And so the focus is on financing the World Bank. So if you want support for the regional banks then it has to be part of a larger, that discussion has to be part of a larger discussion. And that's where some of the issues of governance and the differences across the banks and ideas for making the governance, particularly of the World Bank, based on experience of the regional banks... And I think, actually, the African Development Bank has a problem of governance, uh, very serious problems of governance, which go in the opposite direction, ironically. Too much control by the borrowers. It's very interesting. So, yeah, I'm hoping the EPG, the eminent person, comes up with a simple agenda with a pretty substantial focus on governance. Not on what we've already all heard about and know about. Uh, on governance and on... Uh, Pushing, creating incentives for the multilateral banks to uh, see themselves as part of a system, to do more collaboration, recognizing that they're going to compete, Susan, they're going to compete. There's no way to stop that. Um, So, okay, I don't know if that was an answer. On the (laughs) much of an answer, let's, you know, it's like knock on wood. You might be right, unfortunately, it might all come to naught. But the idea and the recommendation is not just one time, but every five years. So even if the one-time approach doesn't go very far, maybe there would be more later. Uh, The Ivanka Fund, you know, it's very small, small potatoes. Uh, Who could say it's not a good thing to have someone close to Trump interested in women's issues? Uh, the fact is that there's a woman. <laughs> uh, there's a woman named D- Dina Powell, who was in the White House uh, on the National Security s- Staff. She left after about six months, but she had run something out of uh, Goldman Sachs called. Um, anyway, it was about pushing for uh, women's programs in microfinance to give, and, and SMEs, to give women more access. So she basically is behind this initiative. And I think she delivered it to Ivanka. And Ivanka, there's no reason why Jim Kim wouldn't want to at least cooperate and collaborate. But I don't think it's going to change things that much. You know, it's, it's another drop in a big swamp of difficulties including for women uh, in, among other things, getting access to credit. Uh, the trust funds, you know, it's, it's really a problem. Uh, and it's not just a problem in terms of management and, you know, priorities, or it is a problem in terms of priorities, because the trust funds tend to reflect donor priorities, you know. So they don't take into account the concept of the multilateral banks, and in this case the World Bank, as more like a credit union where all the members, you know, collaborate on making high-level decisions. Then you have some members... That's one view. Another view is, well, the donors really have confidence that the World Bank, you know, will do it okay. The World Bank has legal, fiduciary, you know, it has good staff, there won't be financial problems, there will be audits, and, and many people will complain about this and that, but let's so then you think of the World Bank as kind of a holding company where the rich have more say through trust funds. Uh, the problem with the trust funds in addition to that doesn't reflect anything like collective action in a, in a bank or a credit cooperative, which was the original design with Keynes and Company and Bretton Woods, is that it's all this fragmentation. And those of you who know the World Bank realize that many staff in operations spend 30, 40, 50% of their time as entrepreneurs getting access to trust fund resources. So it's incredibly inefficient. But the inefficiency is only the, the, the a minimal problem compared to the broader problems of governance where you have the donors for lack of other ways to proceed, given the structure of the bank doing these trust funds. So our idea about a global public goods window is, in part, make it big, you know, and force the shareholders to, to figure out how they're going to manage it and what it should do and what priorities it should set through, the, through, the, through some sort of a sensible governance arrangement for that window. Anything
4: to add? You, uh, Can I just add on the, the Ivanka fund? So um, my take on that would be there's an interesting kind of dual discourse around gender. One is the, the sort of mainstreaming, i.e. ignoring. And the second, the, the sort of flip side of that coin is the making women and girls responsible for all development outcomes. So, you know, if you invest in women, you solve development. Um, And and, and that's a really unproductive agenda. And the focus on women as economic agents through loans has been really psychologically and physically damaging to women. Um, So, you know, I think they're a problematic development at many levels rather than a progressive one.
3: So one question about uh, uh, low-level engineers. For example, you know, uh, this report listed... uh, uh, one of the global uh, public goods uh, uh, agriculture. Uh, for example, you know, uh, in Africa, amazingly, there is no green r- r- revolution yet right. in Africa, especially in the field of, uh, I think, maize production uh, and other crops, uh, uh, green revolution is needed. Uh, so we, we, we need a basic research about uh, you know, uh, agriculture, uh, 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 you know, investment, and also beyond this, so those engineers and uh, experts in specific fields are needed. And also, beyond this simple uh, scientific uh, uh, innovation, uh, in order to make it um, uh, available and deliver to the poor people in the struggle, we need a broader scope. Uh, we, we need a deep knowledge about livelihood of these struggles and also investment um, uh, whether agriculture related investment is really makes sense or not, and also uh, trade and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, distribution system, we need really um, multi sector uh, very detailed uh, high quality evidence so that uh, we can make uh, agriculture public goods uh, really uh, meaningful and uh, relevant. so in this um, uh, in this uh, setting, I think uh, engineers and specialists they, they play a very important role. So that's what I try to say. And this system should be incorporated into the big high-level argument.
2: It's just when you put low level and then you
0: put engineers and plumbers, you're in a bit of trouble there cause, <laughs> because a lot of uh, what we've talked about the last couple of days is about right. infrastructure. And one of the problems right. the oh, infrastructure okay. industry has so is they actually, fail to attract yeah.
4: people. There so right. when you put That's low right. level, okay. level okay. next to We're engineers and plumbers, but you put uh, some people yeah, off. Yeah, if, I, I, if I so. put the
3: plumber, is uh, because of uh, Esther Duflo, you know, MIT professor who is working on uh, uh, poverty and development economics. Uh, he, she delivered uh, a speech uh, last year on this title, economics of planners. So that's why I put this. It's just associated you say. associate it with low level. Yeah, that's right. I, 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 it gives real okay. negative okay. connotations okay. and you'll never get those and infrastructure okay. projects finished because okay. okay. no one wants okay. to go into the US. Okay. It's okay. a big problem
2: there.
0: All
1: right, we've got time for one more round of questions. So I've, oh, I've got one, two... I'm going to take five, three, four, five. Yep. I, I, I just, to get the panel's thoughts, um, in terms of... Uh, Submarine cables, there's very large
0: investments going in from private sector firms, Uh, Facebook, Google, uh, building, uh, trans-ocean cabling. Um, Do you see the banks stepping back from that sort of infrastructure investment because you see the private sector coming in? And what are your thoughts about uh, private ownership of what is going
1: to be increasingly fundamentally important infrastructure? Okay. Just here. I'm
0: just wondering whether you could describe the shareholder reaction to the recommendations there. Microphone. The, the, the shareholder reaction to recommendations in your report, especially the one around the creation of the global public goods stop, are there any kind of key blocks that have particular positions on? <coughs> the
1: middle. To here.
0: Uh, thanks, Sebastian from Scope Global. Uh, just a question around um, a of, of the project cycle. We've implemented a number of ADB programs in the Asia Pacific region over the years. Uh, just think about some of the other sessions at this conference around uh, adaptable and flexible programming and things like that, um, we found that quite challenging uh, with the Asian Development Bank. Uh, more bureaucratic than some of our relationships with bilateral donors, for example. Just thought, yeah, if you have any comments on to what extent the banks um, can or will uh, allow for more flexible and adaptive uh, programming in the the project cycles. Thanks. Um, Aaron Soames from the Bank Study Centre. Nancy had a question um, for you. You brought up how the ownership structure of the Inter-American Development Bank contributed to its success in many ways.
2: Um, so how important do you think are reforms to the ownership structure of the World Bank? And, and do you have any ideas of how we can engage in that very politically contentious issue?
1: Why?
0: Uh, Claire O'Brien from IANI Consultants.
1: Uh, the microfinance fund, Nancy, is called 10,000 Women. Thank you. Couldn't remember. Uh, I I mentioned that because uh, microfinance is an area where impact or social investment has already had uh, some leverage. Um, Mr. Sawada was talking about bringing private investors into uh, uh, infrastructure as well as uh, as another secondary. But I mean, impact investors now are looking at other things such as renewable energy, healthcare, and education. So I wondered whether the, the multilateral banks would have a role to catalyze those impact investors into those particular sectors as... As well as microfinance and infrastructure. Yep. Just for gender balance. Well, I'll let you that one. Yeah. Irene Bain from AIIB.
4: Um, very interesting presentations. But a question for Nancy, which is a, um, a key issue in the MDB world at the moment. What are your thoughts on
2: graduation, particularly from upper middle income countries?
1: Great. Okay, Nancy.
2: Uh, was the question about private ownership of ICT for? Um, yeah, okay, so. good. Uh, that's good. So, <laughs> although it's a great question, uh, love to answer it, but I'm glad somebody else. So, shareholder reactions to the report. I think, other than the immediate interest uh, that came from Germany in dealing with the mini Britain Woods idea. They, I don't see, particularly on the global public goods, any direct reaction. Now, let me explain very quickly my theory about why. So, it's a collective action problem to get financing for global public goods. And in addition to all the things that Susan said about, well, why not the Green Climate Fund, and what about the role of WHO, if we're talking about pandemics, all of which I'd like to answer, but I won't, for lack of time... Um, Basically, the rich don't need... The the rich shareholders have their trust funds where they get what they want to the extent they can out of the World Bank as a bureaucracy. The middle-income countries worry that anything that smells like transferring net income to a new window or raising additional money that is not recapitalization for their borrowing is going to take away through the algorithm that generates the need for prudential finance of the whole system they they end up paying the cost and i learned that when i was at the idb when the debt program which was agreed at the in the boards of the imf and world bank the board of the idb which has a you know a lot of power with the latins said we are not going to Use our limited resources to pay for the debt relief of Bolivia and Uganda, and it was a terrible fight for several years. It eventually got worked out, but there was this combination of bitterness that some other boards had made decision where the Bolivia was actually IDB had more uh, Bolivia had more debt with the IDB than with the World Bank or the IMF. So. The poorest countries fear that any money into global public goods is taking away money from Ida. So there's really no political champion without what used to be the big bully of the United States when, for example, the Ida window was opened. So it's sort of a collective action problem around the lack of money for collective action problems. (laughs) And that's why I hope that all of you who think this is a sensible recommendation that some start should be made on employing all the forces of the World Bank, technical, legal, fiduciary, and mostly that the World Bank can raise the money. You know, it has a lot of money already. if If Jim Kim, if the shareholders could agree to say, use that money in part in this way. Not to do what all the others are doing, and this is a partial answer to Susan's point. No, not to implement everything. Let WHO implement things. But that's where we could hope to generate resources. Okay, so how important are reforms to the ownership structure? It's ironic, you know, already the developing countries have 47% or something like that of the World Bank votes. So great right, to get to 50%, but I think... The presidency of the World Bank is so powerful that the big reform would be, in my view, some sort of special majority voting for the president. Uh, At the IDB, again, you know, I learned the president is elected under a double majority rule, and I think the Asian Development Bank in some form so needs a majority of the weighted votes, which is where, of course, the U.S. and the other big, Uh, Rich countries have a lot of votes in the weighted vote system, so they dominate. But also a majority of the borrowers, the regional borrowers' votes, country by country. So you cannot become the president of the IDB if you don't have sufficient support from the borrowers. And in the World Bank context, this sort of double-majority voting would enhance the potential for developing countries to coalesce and make agreements among themselves. And I think, you know, looking back, that candidates like Paul Wolfowitz would not have been elected if there had been a double majority system. So impact investors into those sectors. You know, I think a lot is being done already um, on the social impact investors. And we have this product that we developed at Center for Global Development called Development Impact Bonds, which is meant to take advantage of the social impact investing. I forget where that question came from. I'm sorry. Um, So I think at the multilateral banks, I would put a premium on dealing with something that you heard about in the context of the Asian Development Bank, finding ways to do de-risking or to uh, enhance, you know, or to provide guarantees to potential private investors in... um, on the on the return they get, they'll get. You know, it, it's we're not all all the talk about blended finance needs a lot more thinking in terms of how to be creative, uh, and because that's the big money, that's the billions to trillions issue. Um, the social impact investing, well, it would be interesting if it raised got to the level of a billion, but you know, or two billion a year. So that, that, but that's going along all right, and I think it's very important, and maybe we'll provide a model for the other. And then on graduation, um, I think that <laughs> it would be a good thing on the agenda of a mini Bretton Woods. It would make so much more sense for all the MTBs to have voluntary graduation, and to uh, create incentives for countries like Brazil, and China to graduate themselves by their facing somewhat higher interest rates. You could tie the rate of interest on an IBRD loan to not creditworthiness, which is the traditional way, but in the other direction, the richer you are, the more you pay for an IBRD loan. And this reduces the subsidy between what you would get if you borrowed on the market and what you get from the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank. And the fact is that Korea had voluntarily graduated from these banks, the ADB and the World Bank, back in the mid 90s. And then there was a crisis. And Korea went back and borrowed again. And so, why not? You know, then we don't have to have all these debates between. China and the U.S. between the U.K. and Australia, in a way, maybe we don't know exactly what Australia's position will be. Uh, and we, it 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 goes back to my sense that in this world where developing countries and emerging markets are becoming bigger and bigger as a proportion of global GDP, we've got to think of 21st century MDBs more like credit cooperatives. More like your credit union, if you uh, use a credit union.
3: Last question. yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, Susan's uh, uh, first question, uh, why World Bank should uh, lead and play a uh, uh, key role uh, in providing global public goods? I think that's a fundamental question we need to also uh, to discuss. Um, my... Uh, response is uh, as a part of ADB. My response is, uh, of course, uh, you know, health, WHO, global fund can potentially play a key role, uh, agriculture, CGIAR. But actually, we have uh, so many diversified um, uh, issues and uh, emerging new and old issues, and um, uh, agriculture, health, and climate change, et cetera, et cetera. So I think putting uh, different expertise and uh, uh, different sector and different country uh, engagement in one box Um, uh, I think it's not a bad idea or rather uh, important to maximize uh, use of uh, uh, limited resources um, uh, to identify critical issues in different sectors, different countries, and also um, uh, deciding optimal allocation of uh, available resources in different uh, issues. Uh, I think a flexible uh, project, uh, we we have been doing a relatively new uh, instrument called the Policy-Based Loan. This is flexible. Uh, uh, use of uh, funding is possible, uh, although uh, shareholders, our shareholders, are not necessarily always supportive because uh, flexibility seems to be risk involving a risk of a potential risk of uh, lack of pr- transparency. But anyway, we ha- have been doing this, and um, uh, private sector investment in ICT. I think this is a broader issue of uh, cross-border uh, competition policy, which is not necessarily. Uh, doing, uh, uh, which is a uh, really under-investigated, under-examined area. But I think uh, what our uh, position is, uh, uh, with ICT, CROC uh, countries and Pacific nations can leapfrog. There is a big chance for leapfrogging. But uh, we are uh, looking at the margin where private investment has not been done. So rather we, we see this issue is trying to facilitate more private investment and creating, creating in uh, private uh, sector uh, And finally, uh, uh, impact investors. Uh, my comment is a little bit beyond the scope of uh, this report and today's discussion, but actually, we need uh, evidence. Uh, microcredit is great, but actually, hard evidence shows that microcredit is not a uh, silver bullet. There are mixed uh, impact on poverty reduction. So, and rather, there are alternative, uh, really amazing uh, you know, uh, evaluation results emerging from, uh, for example, Bangladesh, uh, uh, Brac, Energy Brac, have been uh, started targeting rural pro- program TUP, and this TUP was now replicated in many countries, and same amazing uh, positive result, resulting uh, poverty reduction. So I think uh, evidence to identify uh, right uh, investment. That's really a basis for any impact investment and also any operations in mdp
4: so uh, 60 just on the, the, the 60 seconds on the microcredit and social impact investments, the, the net evidence on microcredit, even from the most conservative sources of randomised control si- of trials, is that its net impact on poverty is zero. Zero. For all the money that's spent. And the more progressive research paints a rather glimmer, gr- grimmer picture. So going to the larger issue of social impact investing, I actually think we need to be talking about transfers and um, you know, and government funding for social sectors, not um, debt-based instruments for those sectors. It's you know, a different issue.
0: Thanks.
4: I just want to say a quick word
2: on this fundamental question, is the World Bank the best place for a global public good fund that Susan raised? I guess maybe I already said it is the best place, mostly because of the financing side it is not the best place to do all the implementation to to set priorities uh, as we heard about the shareholders of a window would set priorities and that would be an ongoing discussion we don't know what the next crisis will be right? so with that I also want I mean there were many other good comments from the two discussants and I want to thank them for it I know Chris won't give me time to answer any (laughs) of them. We thank all of you for your questions. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au.
0: To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific, and global
2: development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, You
4: can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.